group of scholars from various universities supported by local business and professional leaders and promotes a natural law public philosophy rooted in the principles of the American founding. One that pursues freedom and prosperity grounded on the moral integrity of the culture and of our social and political institutions. Um, so I'm sure we'll hear maybe a little bit about that after your lecture night if people don't know about that. But he's also obviously a professor um, at the University of Dallas. And um, one thing I will share with you is in connection with this event, I mentioned this to a couple of people, I received an email from someone from the class of 1976, who I don't know, um, but is a fellow practitioner, um, lawyer in New Jersey, and he told me that he you know, went to UD, graduated in 1976, and was so upset he couldn't make it tonight because he loves natural law, and he sent me a whole list of articles that he's published as a practicing lawyer where he actually gets in the reference to natural law. So I thought, only UD. Um, and with that, Dr. Will, thank you so much. Well, what I want to do tonight, I want to do three lectures in one, which means basically I'm going to try to do 10 minutes on three topics. And what it is is, in effect, throwing out ideas so that you can discuss some of those. We can have a discussion afterwards uh, about some of them. And the first 10 minutes is a lecture on natural law ethics. The second 10 minutes is a lecture on natural law and politics. And the third lecture is a law on natural law and American politics. So as you might expect, with 10 minutes, this is not going to be an in-depth discussion. But my guess is you actually might prefer that. I'm not sure how many of you want to really dig deep into the Summa Theologiae uh, at 6.30 on a week, a workday night. So uh, let me dive into the uh, natural law ethics. What is natural law? I mean, it's basically an ethical theory, but what does it say? Well, we start with the first principle of practical reason. Now, that's foundational. It's, it's like the principle of non-contradiction in speculative reason. You know, a thing cannot be and not be at the same time in the same respect. And that's just the foundation for everything else. You know? And in fact, as a first principle, you can't prove it. It's something that's self-evident. If you understand the terms, you understand that it's true. But there's no way to prove it because you can't appeal to anything more fundamental. Well, the same thing is true with, in, in practical reason with respect to this principle, uh, the first principle of practical reason. And it is that the good is what is to be done and evil is to be avoided. Okay? That's the kind of foundational principle of moral life. Okay? Now, you move from there to to what you might call the, the general or the common precepts of natural law. And the, you know, one of the most general and most obvious ones is uh, act according to reason, because this is something distinctive about human beings, right? Now, if the first principle is uh, the good is to be pursued and evil is to be avoided, how do we know what the human good is? And Aquinas basically elaborates three areas of the human good. He says there are some parts of the human good that involve what we share in common with other substances, which is, for example, self-preservation, the desire to preserve ourselves. A second area would be what we have in common with the animals, which would include things like the union between man and woman and their having offspring, family. And then third, are the things that are distinctive about human beings. For example, to, to know the truth, especially about the whole, for instance, the truth about God, and also uh, to live in society together as well. That's a, an essential part of, of human nature. So these are different areas of good. And then we have this principle saying, act according to reason. And you can elaborate that a bit more. The next step might be um, something like the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. You know, one way of viewing the Ten Commandments is to say, it's more or less act reasonably with respect to God, act reasonably with respect to your parents, with respect to human life, 
with respect to sexuality, with respect to property, with respect to truth-telling. You know, you have these different areas of life, and we should act reasonably in each one of those. In a negative formulation, you're kind of setting the boundaries, you come up with things like don't kill, don't commit adultery, don't steal, you know, don't bear false witness, and, and so forth. So these are still common precepts, and, and Aquinas makes a pretty strong claim. He says that these common precepts are known by all, and they hold universally. He's a very strong statement. Uh, he does undercut it a little bit when he says, well, well, it's true we all know, for example, we should murder. It's not always clear what murder is. You know, so for instance, in some primitive societies, murder would be, don't kill somebody in your own tribe, right? But, you know, it took some development to understand that it wasn't just people in your own tribe you shouldn't kill, right? So these principles of the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, are these broad common precepts of the law. Then you move from there down to what you might call secondary precepts. As you start applying these to more particular circumstances. And at that level, you get a, a shift. Not all of these principles are known to everybody. Some of them are known, Aquinas says, only to the wise. And they also don't hold all the time. It's not like it's not as if they hold 100%. So for example, uh, don't steal, it's a general principle, that holds pretty universally. Where there's legitimate property rights, you shouldn't take somebody else's property. But you can move down there to a more particular principle. That principle might be, well, return borrowed goods. Okay? We should return borrowed goods. That's an aspect of respecting property rights. Uh, on the other hand, is it true that we should always return borrowed goods? You know, if the guy comes to the door, you know, you, you borrowed his shotgun last month to go hunting comes to the door muttering imprecations about his unfaithful wife and his best friend, and he says, I want my shotgun back. <laughs> Under those circumstances, should you return borrowed goods? The answer is no, don't return the borrowed goods in that case, okay? Because there's a different set of circumstances where you'd in a way be cooperating in an immoral act, you know, the act of murder. So, uh, as you get down to more details, more detailed circumstances, you know, the principles don't hold as consistently, and, and they're not always known as well either. You know, that it, it takes more to know, and as you get down to more detail, it takes people who know the circumstances more, and some people do, some people don't, so there's variation in knowledge. So, uh, and at this point, you have to emphasize especially that in Aquinas, natural law is not a standalone theory unrelated to the rest of what he talks about. And in particular, it's important to recognize the connection between natural law and his whole theory of virtues, which is a really central uh, element of his moral thinking. Uh, this is something, by the way, very well developed by the current provost uh, at University of Dallas, uh, Jonathan Sanford was really a top-notch virtue ethicist. So um, morality is not just a question of knowing things, you know, that you have this natural law and you know that these are other principles and so forth. I mean, it's, it's important that you know the principles, but it's, it's not just your intellect that has to be focused on the, the good. It's your will that has to be focused as well, because one element, one, one problem here is that, you now Aristotle says man is a rational animal. I'd like to say man is a rationalizing animal. You know, because human beings are so good at rationalizing, which means what, what they're doing is they have a will that's focused on something, and then they kind of bring their intellect into line with what they want. And that's dangerous. Because sometimes if, if their will is not properly oriented, what they want isn't so good. And when they rationalize, it leads away from reason. So uh, it's, 
one of the really important aspects of, of Aquinas' moral thinking is the importance of the fact that the will has to be properly oriented. It's not just a question of abstract knowledge, but of the right orientation of the will as well. So uh, those are some examples of Aquinas on natural law. And uh, for those of you who stayed up late last night, you know, trucking your way through uh, Aquinas' treatise on law, uh, I'd certainly be happy to discuss it you know, in more detail or, or further with you. But at this point, let me move on to the, the second topic, which is natural law and politics. Let's suppose that you agree with Aquinas' natural law ethics, this theory of natural law together with the virtues. What would be the implications of that for politics? Well, here, Aquinas starts off very much the Aristotelian. You know, he, he, an important part of his understanding of human beings is that there's something called human nature, and that nature has a certain kind of orientation, so that what is good for a being, what makes it flourish and do well, is something that reflects the nature of that being and what is good for it. And one of the key elements Aquinas argues uh, for, for human beings, is that man is a political animal. And of course, when he's a political animal, he doesn't mean that the way political science would talk today. I mean, politics, when you think of politics today, what do you think about? Usually it's government, right? It's like where we are, Washington, right? What's going on in government? For Aristotle, it's much broader than that. And basically, politics is the science of human beings living together in community. So it includes political science. It also includes economics, the household management talked about at the beginning of the politics. It includes what we call sociology, things like the family. So um, it's really important for Aquinas that we're, we human beings are only able to achieve our good in conjunction with other human beings. And again, he follows Aristotle in talking about the fact that, well, we begin in fairly limited communities. We never actually begin in the state of nature, you know, like Locke's state of nature. You know, Locke imagines a state of nature where you've got these adults that apparently have just come out of nowhere, and they're there as individuals, isolated individuals. Aristotle would say, are you kidding? Are we talking about human beings here? We all come out of the fundamental community, which is the family. We couldn't exist without that fundamental community. So you start with that level. Then you get collections of families. It grows. You get villages. And throughout this early, these early stages, uh, Aquinas following Aristotle says, what, you're, what these communities are doing, at the beginning especially, it's just trying to stay alive, and just trying to survive, which is not an easy thing to do. I mean, we take affluence for granted. You know, just think about human history and the past and the, the real struggle to, to survive. And it's only at a certain point in time that the community grows large enough that it has what you might call surplus resources. And the result is that they can afford to do things that are not just for the sake of staying alive. For example, go to UD, right? You guys you know, well, spent four years at UD, uh, absolutely useless you know, to your families and, and other people and to society because you were studying. You were studying why? probably for different reasons, a variety of reasons. You know, for some of you, getting a job matters somewhat. You know? On the other hand, of course, at UD, with the UD core curriculum, above all, it was knowledge. Why? For its own sake. Not for the sake of something else, but just because knowledge is a good in itself, especially when you're talking about knowledge of the whole, the whole kind of interrelationship of all the different aspects of reality. And you were forming basically a view of reality. You came away with some kind of concept, a framework for understanding reality that 
that you constantly adjust as you add new things, as you have additional experiences in your life. And that wouldn't have been possible unless human beings had already gotten to the point where they had what? A polis, right? What's the polis? What's, what makes that different from everything that came before? It's a self-sufficient community. And they mean by that not self-sufficient in the sense of keeping one person alive or something like that. Basically, it was self-sufficient in the sense that it allowed for a development of the full range of human capacities and all the different kinds of things that human beings can do, all the different kinds of intellectual and moral virtue. So, for example, I mean, in a way, you have to be, you have to have enough resources that you can have all kinds of useless people studying a liberal education or engaged in the arts or engaged in philosophy. Of course, they're not useless, actually. In fact, they turn out to be very useful in many ways. But the point is that the activity they're engaged in is it's not for the sake of something else or to stay alive. It's, it's to understand, just because understanding is a really good thing. You know, that human beings who understand are better off than people who don't understand, right? So the self-sufficient community makes possible a wide range of activities that wouldn't be possible before you get to the polis, okay? And that's basically to say that for you need political life in order to be able to really live human life fully, to have access to this wide range of goods. And, it occurs in different ways. Not everybody is a philosopher, but in some ways all of us do have some access to intellectual goods, you know, ways of developing intellectual virtue. For instance, if you see, sit down and read a good book, you know, that kind of expands your understanding of reality. It's a way of increasing your intellectual uh, virtue. Uh, I, I may be stretching with this example, but it's actually true. If you watch a really good TV program, there are some, yeah. that's actually a way of actually increasing your understanding of reality. Uh, we can debate about which one or two shows are actually <laughs> in that category, you know, but, but there are some, you know, for sure. And uh, actually, there's a fascinating discussion by a, a political theorist named Eric Vogelin uh, in, a, in a book called The New Science of Politics, um, where he He's trying to describe the way communities share goods. <clears throat> uh, one thing I'll talk a little bit about is the common good. It's a particular feature of natural law politics. And the idea of the common good is not just that everybody is better off as individuals. You know, the gross natural product goes up. We kind of divvy that up among people. There's more money, more resources, so we're all better off. It's not just individuals, it's also the common life. But how do we think about the common life? You know? the, well, one way, I mean, Volkland is the great example of Greek drama. You know, many of you people, I hope most of you, went on the road program. And you took the, this, the trip to Greece, right? You had a chance to go to a, uh, an amphitheater where Greek dramas were, were conducted. And Vogelin gives the example of a play called The Suppliants by Aeschylus. And that play, it's, it's about a woman who's in some way distantly related to the people of Athens. Uh, and thank you, And he, uh, the, uh, she's being chased by the sons of Egyptus. You know, they, they, they want her back. And she kind of throws herself on the mercy of uh, the Athenians and says, I need protection. I'm your kin. You gotta protect me. Well, the leaders of the city have to decide what does justice demand here? DK, you know, what is justice here? You know, she's kin. We really have an obligation to help her. But you know, our very self-preservation is on the line because that's a big army out there, and if we protect her, they're going to attack us. And in the ancient world. Those of you who have read Thucydides you know, know that if you lose the war, it's not like you, know, you lose a legal case, you know? <laughs> it's like 
it's wiped out. Everybody's killed, you know? So the very existence of the city is on the line. And so the, the leaders quickly realize, well, well, justice demands that we provide this person with the assistance she's asking for. But then they said, but, you know, but we have, because the existence of the city is on the line, we have to help the citizens, you know, participate in this decision and kind of provide leadership in making it. So they kind of, you know, raise this question with the citizenry, get them to share in this decision, ultimately. What Vogelin says about this is, you know, as this drama is going on in the amphitheater, and the citizens of Athens are sitting in the amphitheater listening to this, what they're all doing is they're sharing in this reflection on what justice is and what it demands. And that's the ultimate in sharing. You know, if it's a pot of money, what you get, I don't get. You know, we're not really sharing it, we're dividing it up. But immaterial things, like knowledge or an understanding of moral virtue, that is fully shareable. You know, because you having more of it doesn't mean I have to have any less. We can all share fully in it. And that's a kind of an example of the common good. That it concerns not just, I mean, it, it certainly includes the good of every single individual in society. But it also includes this question of the quality of the common life, the shared life together, what you might call civic friendship, and what that civic friendship is based on. So that's kind of an I mean, introduction to the natural law and politics. And I'll just mention in passing four fundamental principles of, I think, natural law principles on political life, which I think will probably be readily familiar to you, but perhaps not in a specifically natural law context. The four principles are, first of all, human dignity. Every human being has a dignity because they have each human being has the capacity to know and to love, something that makes that creature distinctive from other kinds of creatures. And so, uh, of course, people develop those capacities to different extents, but everybody has the capacity, which is a source of dignity for every human being. So that's the foundational principle. And then you move to the common good that the goal of society is to pursue the good of all the individuals in society, that nobody is outside the concern of the common good. Now, there are times, actually, when people may join in a sacrifice for the common good. Sometimes the common good demands that you defend the country, and some people actually get killed defending the country, and that's necessary. Doesn't mean their good was any less important. In fact, in some ways, it's a certain kind of good that's achieved when you give your life for your own company, country. It's actually a, 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 a real noble uh, form of living, uh, as you know from studying Iliad, Odyssey, and many other things. So the common good is, is a second principle that's very important. Third one, maybe an extension of the common good, you might call it solidarity. And this is kind of the virtue that orients everybody toward the common good. And I mean, it's a practical matter. I mean, frankly, you know, one problem in practical political life is that often we view political life as a question of pursuing our own interests. And that's the antithesis of the common good. And if we go into political life to pursue our interests or the interests of people like us or people we're united with, and are willing to put other people outside the bounds of what the common good pursues. That's a problem. I'll give you one concrete example. Uh, I mean, I, I don't, want, don't mean this to be partisan, but uh, I remember you know, Donald Trump on one occasion basically saying, with respect to you know, what the impact of our actions were on Mexico, he basically said, I don't give a damn about Mexico. You know, my job is to help people in the United States. I applaud his concern for people in the United States, but for anybody to say I don't give a damn about Mexico is, I think, a real problem. <laughs> you know, it's, it's to say that somehow you've limited the bonds of your human concern. Now, it's true we don't have a world state, so Mexicans aren't our fellow citizens, but actually you could argue that there's a kind of inchoate common good of the human race as a whole. It's not really fleshed out 
Uh, but it, it's there. It's one reason why we do have obligations to respect the rights of other nations, for example. That makes an example where you just can't put other people off limits outside your concern. The fourth principle is one that you know is very little known, uh, but it's so important. That's the principle of subsidiarity. And basically what it says is that every function that needs to be performed ought to be performed by the lowest level of community that can perform that function adequately. Okay? So if the family can do something, the family should do it rather than the locality or voluntary association. Or uh, if the state government can do it, maybe smaller communities can't, but the state can, well then the state should do it rather than the federal government. On the other hand, there are some things that the that can't be done by anybody less than the federal government. For instance, national security. You know, basically that's not going to be able to be handled by a lower level community. It takes the whole nation to do that. You have different functions at different levels. And the principle is you always try to do it at the lowest level possible. Why? Why would that be a moral principle? And the answer is because that's necessary for the self-development of human beings. In some ways, the ultimate goal of a community is to produce excellent human beings. Human beings who have intellectual and moral virtues. How do you develop virtues? One way you develop them is by doing it. Right? When you have kids, how do they develop moral virtues? You don't start off with lectures on Aquinas and having them read the treatise on law at age four or six or eight. You, know, you start off by making them do virtuous acts. Developing virtuous habits by doing repeated actions, right? That's true not just of kids. It's true of all of us, actually. So which is better that a family be able to provide for itself its essential economic resources or for a locality or a state or a national government to provide the family with the resources that it needs? I mean, there are arguments about what exactly would be necessary, but in principle, the more you can do things at the lower level, the better. Because as the family you know, takes care of itself, as, as people work to accumulate the resources necessary for the family, they develop virtues, their own capacities. You know, which, you know, if, if somebody does it for you, you may end up having the resources you need but the most important resource of all hasn't been developed. You. <laughs> you know, that's the key. And subsidiarity says not only that you should do it at the lowest level, but even if higher levels do things, they should do it as much as possible in the form of, the root of the word, subsidium. That is, they assist, they provide help or assistance to the lower levels of community. So ideally, to the extent possible, when higher associations need to do things, they should try as much as possible to do things by assisting lower levels of community. So for example, a public policy that functionally displaced fathers by providing you know, resources to the family directly, making fathers in some ways unnecessary, is not a good policy. Not a good policy for the family. It actually has the effect of disrupting the family and weakening the family, and that's something we've all seen with America, with very extremely well-intended policies in America that have had the effect of weakening family. At any rate, uh, let's see. How long have I been talking now? Do you know? I don't want to talk too long. Um, yeah, did you want to do your third point? Yeah, I'll just do it really quickly. I mean, I, I can't do it. <laughs> I'll just kind of mention, I mean, basically it's talking about uh, a book I wrote called Natural Law Liberalism. It's what is the impact of, or the relationship of natural law to American society, which is you know, classic liberal society. When you think of liberalism, liberalism is a, a kind of family of political theories that goes back to the 17th century. I think especially of Locke and Montesquieu and John Stuart Mill, people like that. Actually, there are different kinds of liberalism. They're not all identical, they're not all the same. And there's some really interesting questions, including current controversies, about how good liberalism is, and especially whether people are oriented toward natural law or 
similarly, Catholic social thought, uh, how they should feel about liberalism. There's one very interesting book that was just written called Why Liberalism Failed by Patrick Deneen of the University of Notre Dame. Patrick will be speaking at University of Dallas three weeks from tomorrow. So uh, we'll have him in. And basically his argument is, you know, a lot of you conservatives think that the problem today is that liberalism has gone off the rails. That contemporary liberalism has departed from the principles of the founding. What Patrick says is, no. The problem today is that what we see today is a logical working out of the principles of the founding. It's liberalism that's the problem. You know, the, the rot was there from the beginning. It just took time to work out the implications. Very interesting book. Fundamentally wrong, in my opinion. Yeah. So, in fact, I'm going to give, give we're going to have two people responding to Patrick at UD. Myself, who will criticize him, and Glenn Patton in our department, who will be on his side. You know, he'll he'll uh, he's another one who doesn't have any great fondness for liberalism. So, uh, basically, what I did is I wrote a book called Natural Law Liberalism that spends the first half bashing contemporary liberalism. And it goes through all the usual suspects. It's John Rawls and Ronald Dworkin and Stephen Macedo and Amy Gutman and these kind of liberal scholars uh, who in some ways are the intellectual foundation for a lot of things that I think probably most of us don't like. Broad abortion rights, you know, gay marriage, statism, you know, a variety of you know, things that we associate with contemporary liberalism. And uh, so I you know, give a critique of those, and then having, I hope, demolished them, you know, or at least sufficiently criticized them, I kind of move on to the question, okay, well, what would be an alternative approach? If we don't want Rawls and Macedo and contemporary liberals, what is it that we would want? And I make an argument, you know, that traditionally it was thought that natural law and liberalism were really incompatible and irreconcilable. Think about the early liberals, people like Locke, uh, for example. What did they think of natural law in the more traditional sense, Thomistic natural law? Well, that's actually a tough question. Tom West thinks there's not a dime's difference between Thomas Aquinas and John Locke, which I find amazing. <laughs> but you know, Tom's a smart guy. He's, he's written some interesting books on the subject. Uh, he says, first it's on the family. That Aquinas and Locke are, are very much alike. Locke basically says, there's an absolute obligation of the parents to stay together for as long as there are kids. When the kids are adults, then they can split. Doesn't sound like Aquinas to me. You know, it sounds very, very different. Uh, so, uh, but it's clear, and this is what you see especially in the French Revolution, you know, that for early liberals, you know, just think of Voltaire, what was it? Écraser l'enfant, you know, wipe out the infamous thing. It was the church, Christianity was what he was talking about, right? You know, and that was really on, on notice in the French Revolution, where they, they tore down the altars at Notre Dame, and they actually put, they, they made a kind of goddess of reason in what had formerly been Notre Dame, you know? So, uh, you know, and then on the other side, you know, the, the major carrier of natural law in the modern world is the Catholic Church. Not the only one, but it's certainly one of the major ones. What did the Catholic Church think about liberalism? Well, go back and dig out some 19th century encyclicals, and the church was not enthusiastic about liberalism. You know, there was, uh, it was highly critical in a whole series of 19th century encyclicals, and into the 20th century as well, uh, you know, condemning things like separation of church and state, and freedom of speech and freedom of opinion. And of course, well, we don't, you know, you have to put that in the European, 19th century European context. Those things meant something different there than they mean today. But at least on the face of it, you look at these, you know, you look at natural law and liberalism, it's like deadly enemies, right? Well, there was one guy who knew they weren't deadly enemies, and that guy was the original natural law liberal, as far as I'm concerned, and that is Alexis de Tocqueville. And 
Tocqueville is wonderful because he sees that the, the hostility between the um, liberalism and the church especially was a result of accidental historical circumstances. It's because the old church, the Austrian regime, that there was this kind of interweaving of the higher authorities of the church and the state, the monarchy. And so when the monarchy fell, the church came with it. And he says, that's a historical accident. That was a mistake, getting so entwined with worldly institutions. Because he says, the church doesn't need that. You know, what does the church rest on? It rests on a, something in the human heart. In every human heart, there is a certain desire for immortality. That's why human beings are fundamentally religious animals. You, know, you, you just don't find many societies where religion isn't prominent, you know, where it isn't a very important part of life. There's a reason for that. It's because we all are going to face death someday. And that's quite a confrontation. I mean, thinking about what's on the other side is, is a pretty important thing. And Tocqueville thought that's, what is, that's a solid anchor of the human heart for religion. It doesn't need to be supported by public authorities. So uh, Tocqueville argued that, in fact, America had done an unusually good job of combining natural law and liberalism. It had a lot of political freedom, much more than other parts of the world. And yet, it also had a very strong moral framework, which it derived largely from Christianity. And to show how things have changed, he said, and Christians basically agree on almost all morality. You know, of course, nowadays, you know, whatever your morality is, you can probably find a Christian group that will endorse it, you know, that you can join and, and, uh, and do what you want to do. Uh, that wasn't true for a long time. For example, you know, the, the contraception, the anti-contraception law struck down by the Supreme Court in 1965 in Griswold versus Connecticut, that was passed by the good Protestant burghers of Connecticut back in the 19th century. There was a time when Christians didn't disagree at all about contraception. That was really a, a later 20th century development. You know, we get the splitting. And of course, I mean, you can always understand, I can always understand a little bit how Protestants could accept divorce in a narrow way. Because there's that little passage in one of the Gospels that says, except for porneia, you know, there's a lot of debate about what that means. So, okay, maybe, okay, I can understand how a Protestant would read that and say, well, okay, there ought to be divorce for adultery. But like, no-fault divorce, you know, we can walk whenever we want to. I mean, that's basically what I think, here's I can tell what most Protestants have bought into now. I just find it completely incompatible with the gospel, you know. But, you know, what's happened, I think, is over time, and, and I have to say this has occurred within the Catholic Church as well as outside it, that sometimes people get, they end up, if they're American Catholics, being rather more American than Catholic. <laughs> the influence of the regime can be, be very powerful in ways that even draw them away from their own faith. I mean, you see it today, you know, there's not that much difference, actually, between Catholics and Americans generally when you poll them on issues like uh, divorce and abortion and gay marriage and so forth. Of course, most of the Catholics responding have never seen the church, the inside of the church, for quite a while. You know, but still, in some ways, you know, they identify in some ways as Catholic and still, but not in a way that accepts the teaching. So, uh, so that's a real difference. But when Tocqueville was writing, he said basically. You know, that was a time when the country was like 98% Protestant. And yet, you know, one kind of secret is that the early Protestants actually accepted natural law to a great extent. You know, they certainly did uh, things, like, things like sexual morality or you know, what, what today we call life issues. So uh, in, in this book, basically what I argue is that there's no reason why we should concede to John Locke or Ronald, excuse me, to John Rawls or Ronald Dworkin, you know, the right to say, I am liberalism. You know? In fact, I'll finish with this anecdote. Uh, when I originally started the book, Natural Liberalism, what I was going to argue was, you know, liberalism has some good things, but gosh, there's a lot of bad things as well. And you know what we really need is if liberalism could have worked, you have to kind of go outside of liberalism and appeal to natural law as this kind of external check on the bad tendencies of liberalism. 
And so what you're doing is saying, we don't need a, what we don't need is a liberal government. What we need is a, a government that, that's liberal, but that has a lot of natural law kind of added on top of that, something like that. And what I, I was sitting once in a lecture listening to Peter Berkowitz, and he was starting to describe liberalism, to say what liberalism was. And as he's kind of going down through liberalism, Okay, limited government, checks and balances, separation of powers, distinction between the public and the private. And as he's going down, going, check, check, check. And I'm thinking, oh my Lord, I'm a liberal. You know, <laughs> that is, there's so much in liberalism that's so good. You know, that's the long-term liberalism. I mean, keep in mind that liberalism gave faces to people who were faceless. Before the 17th century, not faceless to everyone, of course. The church, in its better moments, of course, regarded everybody as equal. But did political societies regard everybody as equal? You know, did it, political societies have an equal concern and respect for all the members of society? I don't think so. You know, liberalism had tremendous benefits or problems with it. But what I wanted to say is, well. I'm as much a liberal as other people. I'm a different liberal from Rawls and Dworkin and the people who are pro-choice and pro-gay marriage and so forth. But they don't have any more right to call themselves liberals than I do. You know, I call myself a natural law liberal. So it's not that natural law is this kind of external thing that corrects liberalism. It's an integral part of a good and healthy and decent liberalism. And that's what I think America is. If you look at the principles of the American founding, I think you see something that looks pretty much like a, a pretty good set of liberal principles. Go back to the Declaration. You know, I'm sure you all studied the Declaration at UD, right? You lovingly recall those days when we were going through the Declaration. <laughs> we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they're endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, among these rights are life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. That governments are instituted among men to secure these rights, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. And, I'll say this more shortly, if the government does a bad job, they can replace it. You know? <laughs> these, are good, these are good, sound, liberal principles. And as, as, I, as you go through them and think about it, it actually turns out that natural law thinkers don't have any real problem signing on to these principles. They have to be understood in a certain way. So yes, we believe in rights, but not crazy versions of rights, you know, or versions of crazy rights, you know? We don't believe in some kind of moral autonomy where people can, like, you know, every self-regarding act is legitimate, no matter what it is, even if it's, for instance, destructive of the family, you know? So the, uh, there are, there are ways in which natural law embraces all of those fundamental liberal principles, I think, and at the same time helps to guarantee that they're, they're well-directed. Because that's what Tocqueville actually, at the beginning of democracy in America, I'll conclude with this, the beginning of democracy in America, Tocqueville says, you know, the democratic revolution has all the features of a providential fact it's universal, you know, it's happening everywhere. It, it seems to be inevitable over time, growing more and more. Even people who oppose it end up indirectly helping it go forward. So the democratic revolution, it's here to stay, in this new society built on a greater equality of conditions. But he says, if it's true that the democratic revolution is coming, it can come in different forms, very different forms. It could be a moderate, healthy form, or it could be a wild and disorderly form. And our job is to understand it so that we can pursue the healthy form. He said that's why it came to America, because Americans in many ways had actually developed a lot of ways of keeping modern liberal democratic governments healthy. And that's our job today as well. We're in the same position where we have certain features of life. We can't control all of them. But you know, we want to direct society. And 
natural law helps us to do that, provides a kind of pole star that gives us guidance in order to help bring about uh, a healthier, a better society. And so um, that's why I think you know, the, the question of liberalism in American political life is, is especially uh, concerned about, you know, are those original principles of America basically fundamentally healthy and sound principles? Or are the principles themselves corrupt and, like, and virtually in, inevitably going to lead to, to corruption? I think the answer is no. I think we can have a kind of healthy liberalism in society. And uh, last comment, it's part of what liberal education is about. And it's precisely you know, when Tocqueville's trying to educate people, he's trying to get them to see the big picture and how to direct society well. This is what liberal education makes possible, you know, the kind of education that UD provides. So I, I like to tell UD students that they have quite a responsibility because few people have as good an education as a person gets at UD. If that's the case, then with that power, knowledge is power, comes responsibility as well. Is this where we sit still here for two minutes awkwardly until somebody just overpowered by the awkwardness actually says that? Well, Bowen will take care of this. Just look at the future, Dr. Wolf. Um, American Catholics, it seems like you know, your viewpoint about being more American. Um, maybe one could argue that it's more like kind of Fox News eyes, with respect to issues like the environment and the poor. And you know, some other issues that the Catholic Church is taking more than this sense. Do you think that? I wish there were more. Uh, part of the problem with the polarization is what I mean, you have to ask what the source of the polarization is. And partly it's the fact that, especially since the 19, 1960s, our politics has focused more and more on social issues rather than economic issues. And that those issues are much more difficult to compromise on. Now, if it's, you know, you're working on the economy and you want to you know, put this amount of money into this project or this into that, you can kind of work out compromises, you know? But it's abortion. How do you compromise on abortion? Remember, Lincoln said, our country cannot long last, last, long last, half slave and half free. You know? Sometimes I think that's true with respect to abortion as well. It's, it's a, such a fundamental issue. Like Lincoln, we can make temporary compromises in order to try to improve things marginally. But in the long run, it's essential to hang on to those very clear principles. And unfortunately, the chasm between you know, roughly kind of blue state culture and red state culture, actually maybe blue county culture and red county culture more, actually if you kind of get down to the weeds a bit more, uh, the, the differences are so profound a lot of it, I think, has to do with the decline of, of religion among the intelligentsia, and they're passing it on uh, to the people that they particularly influence. And that leads to worldviews that are profoundly different. Now, you can try your best to try to cooperate with other people to the extent that you can, uh, on, uh, even when you disagree about really fundamental things. Uh, so. You know, I hope that if I were in Congress, I would be able to work with, you know, I'm a fairly conservative Republican, and I hope I can work with you know, liberal Democrats where we have some things in common. And just take one example, that actually have a speaker coming in next week, uh, next year, uh, year on this, uh, February 25th, uh, this American Public Philosophy Institute, I run bring some speakers on a regular basis. I'm bringing in a guy named Chris Soprenant at the University of New Orleans, and he's going to talk about alternatives to mass incarceration. Criminal justice reform is one interesting area where there seems to be some genuine confluence of concern among both conservatives and liberals to reform uh, the, uh, the criminal justice system. You know, the question is, if you're kind of screaming at each other on an issue, you know, one week, are you going to be able to sit down and talk the next week? You know, in the past, 
people could bridge those gaps, those chasms a bit more. Now, I mean, you saw the Brett Kavanaugh hearings, of course, I mean, the, the hearings were, it's almost scandalous, you know, the, the depth of the polarization and the, you know, from my perspective, the sense that, you know, in the service of a particular political goal, you're willing to do almost anything. seems to me that that polarization, this is a very, maybe a partisan way of looking at it, I suppose. But as a conservative, I would, I'd say this. I think the polarization comes from both right and left. Certainly Trump is not somebody who doesn't polarize, right? Uh, so you know, certainly there's contribution uh, from the right. But I think most of the polarization comes from the left. And the reason is this. I think for the left, a very large proportion no longer believes in religion. We saw that at the Democratic National Convention last time when there was a reference to God that actually got booed. And the National Political Convention booed God. It's really bizarre in some ways. So when something like that happens, when you, when you lose religion and you're secularized, the tendency is for politics to become your religion. You know, and that's what I think has happened. For a lot of people, politics is their religion. And there's occasionally a danger of that on the on the, the right as well. And not for Trump. He doesn't believe in religion at all, I don't think. You know. uh, but but um, on the right, you know, sometimes, for example, we, we can fall into the bad habit of demonizing people on the other side because they adhere to really bad principles. You know, things like you know, abortion and marriage and so forth that really are very destructive of human life. You can't demonize your opponent because of that. You actually have to be able to talk with them. You have to have some kind of concern. Now, of course, they may not be willing to talk to you, but you've got to somehow be ready and willing to engage in conversation with other people, even people that you disagree with really fundamentally. And unfortunately, these days, there's not a lot of that, especially in Washington. But not only in Washington. I was in Wisconsin when they passed Act 10. Boy, talk about mass hysteria. I mean, it was just, it was like the world had come down. You know? um, so. yeah. sure. Just picking off of that, how do we get to the point of subsidiarity? How do we work on that? Yeah. Well, the longer Republicans control the White House, the more attractive subsidiarity they look to Democrats. That's one way. I mean, there are some roots, actually, in liberalism, that is, even contemporary liberalism, there are actually some roots for a 